created live on Fireside. Monumentous music for a monumentous occasion. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to it. This is our weekly get-together, and I should do this probably like a, a proper show that airs on ABC. It will go something like this. We're here. Uh, now, deep within the bunker of a brick and steel of a nondescript building, this is Doing It Sober Live. I'm Chris Snell, broadcasting live from South Africa. Daniela Park from the U.S. And plus, also our guest has arrived, Tim Logan, or is it Logan? It's Logan. 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 I always pronounce the last names phonetically, so in advance, <laughs> thank you so much for correcting me on that, Tim. Without further ado... Uh, we would like to remind our audience of the following, that because this is a show that deals with addiction, another rather disconcerting dalliance with regards to the above mentioned is the ugly bedfellow of mental illness. Let it be made known here and now that a handful of criteria has been recorded to date as to be the sole cause of a mental disorder, ranging from namely brain injury, trauma sustained in a family setting, excessive bullying, or even worse yet, a curse of genetics. What's even more disconcerting is the after-effects that prolonged use of drugs and alcohol being a direct contributor to the development of such disorders, which range from anxiety, psychotic disorders, namely like schizophrenia, uh, schizophrenia, excuse me, and even bipolar disorder. But let it be made known here and now, it is never a death sentence. In fact, I would like to say so far in that it is a badge of honor. And in so saying, Tim Largen, the warrior of this week is a sterling example. Tim has been through the ringer in his life, but after a particular dramatic event, this man has made it his mission to not become another statistic, but rather a statement, a shining light, and even an axiom for those whom are afflicted and cannot fathom to reach out. In this discussion to Father, we'll discuss his journey from then until late, how fitness plays a pivotal role, and Tim will even bust some myths and fallacies about mental health afflictions that float about our society today. Tim will also be a featured speaker, taking to the stage of the inaugural Empower to Recover conference that is due to premiere in British Columbia this coming November. Tim, welcome, son. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I look forward to our chat. As do we. To kick off, brother, tell us about your story, about your drug use and how you came to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And are you bipolar type 1 or type 2? I'm type one. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a normal family. I, um, and I say normal. My, my father was a police officer. Um, my mother actually was a professional bodybuilder when I grew up. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And, and this is in the 80s. So in the 80s, women bodybuilders were not common um, no, back, back not then. She was one of the... 10 women to ever be featured in magazines back in the 80s. Um, yeah, that's cool. So I guess that's kind of not a normal family, but um, there was no drugs and alcohol in my house. You know, there was there was never beer in the refrigerator. There was never drugs around. Um, my mother, she's 73 years old, and I think I've seen her drink a beer five times in my entire life. Hmm. So it's it, it wasn't anything that was always around me. My father would have a, a drink occasionally at a family function or a get-together. Again, nothing was relevant in my home. 
Now, my father and mother did get a divorce when I was in first grade. I was six or seven years old. And as a young man growing up, not having your father around, I first thought it was my fault. What did I do? Why did my my parents split up? Was I not a good kid? Did I not listen? Did I not clean my room? Did I not get good enough grades? I blamed it all on me. I have an older brother who's 10 years older than me. And I, I would always say, why did he stick around for my brother? He's in high school. I'm in first grade, but he left me. What was wrong with me? Did he not love me? Did he not want to stick around and raise me? He stuck around for my brother. I don't understand. And I never expressed that to my mom. I, I never, I never asked her why they got a divorce. And my father, he was a, uh, let's just say a, uh, a woman's, woman's man. Uh. And he would call and say, I'm coming to get you, pack your bags. And I'd pack my bags and I'd wait at the front door and an hour would go by. The second hour would come and then the phone would ring. Hey, buddy, sorry, I can't come and get you. Something came up. I got a work over or, or something, something came up. I cannot tell you how many times that phone rang and he never came and got me. It got oh, to the point freaking. where my mom would tell me my dad's coming to get me and I wouldn't even pack the bags because I, I, I would wait at that front door for hours and he would never show up. And that oh, would yeah. just, yeah. And, and that would relates. just, that would impact, man, he really doesn't love me. He just doesn't, he doesn't want to pick me up. He doesn't want to spend time with me. And I held on to that for 30 plus years. I truly believe that when I did start drinking and drugging, that had a role in it because I felt lost. I grew up without a father figure. I felt mm. unloved. Now, my mother, on the other hand, I felt abandoned. Absolutely. My mother, she did the best she could. She got three jobs. She put herself through college. She became a vice president of this big company and um, ultimately became a millionaire. Like She really took the reins of the father and the mother role. And I, I still mm. look up to her today. Um, she had all this money and then now she's living on social security and retirement and she's that she's still happy. She said, Tim, that money and the money goes, it comes and goes. My happiest thing in life is that you're sober. I can watch you take care of your kids. I have grandchildren. That's what's most important to me. And I still look up to her as just, she's my, she's my hero. She, she really truly is. I think in place of my father not being there, I wanted to excel at something. So I was a, an extremely good athlete. I, really? played ba I played baseball for eight years, and I wasn't just on the baseball team. I was the all-star pitcher, made it to the all-star league, and like had to Holy moly. When I played football, I, I was the all-star running back. Um, I picked up skateboarding in middle school, and, and I couldn't <laughs> just skateboard. I had to be, I had to be on the skateboard teams. I had to get sponsored by, you know, independent trucks. And I had to skate with, I grew up with a gentleman named Brandon Novak, um, from yeah. Jackass and Viva La Band. Mm, mm. Um, and he lived right down the street from me. So I would skateboard with him and then another professional skateboarder called Bucky Lassick. Um, they all lived with oh, yes, Bucky. minutes. Used yeah, to skate so with I, Andrew Reynolds. Yeah. Yeah. So I skateboarded with them like first five, six years. I was really close to getting sponsored um, by Pal Peralta and being, being a professional skateboarder. 
I, I started to box in high school, and I, and I wasn't just a normal boxer. I became Golden Glove <laughs> champion and, and junior. I was in the Junior Olympics. I came in third place in the Junior Olympics. And that's when I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 14. Now, my mom thought I was just an emotional kid. Like, when I put my mind to it, nothing would stop me. I would just go, 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 oh, yeah. go. And when I lost, I would be very emotional. Like, why didn't the baseball team win? It's my fault. I didn't pitch good enough. Why didn't I mm. catch that ball? Why didn't I get that guy out? Why didn't I score that touchdown? I would put everything on me that it was all my fault during the team play, not realizing that it's a team effort, but I would solely put all the blame on me. Mm. At 14, my mom did not believe in putting me on medicine. She just thought I was, I was a very determined and emotional young boy and that it would eventually play itself out and I would grow into my, my emotions. So we went to the doctors, they diagnosed me, but she refused putting me on medicine. No drugs, no alcohol. It wasn't interesting to me. I was, I was an athlete. Ninth grade of high school, they had a welcome to high school freshman party. I went. And that's the very first time I tried alcohol mm. and I got extremely sick. I threw up everywhere. I had to hang over the whole deal. My mom picked me up the next day from the kid's house and she said, you drank alcohol last night, didn't you? I said, yeah. She said, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to punish you because the rest of your day is ruined. She's like, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> she said, we're having a cookout at the house. She said, and I need you to shuck 50 ears of corn. She said, that's going to be your punishment. <laughs> she said so she, gave, she gave me a paper bag to, to, to shuck the ears of corn and she gave me a paper bag to get sick and I did that in the basement and I got mm -hmm. ready and I was sick the entire day on the couch she said I think that was punishment <laughs> enough and that, that deterred me I never touched alcohol again until my senior year of high school I was like okay that was that that was a one and done thing and I had no interest in doing that and at this point drugs weren't even on my radar the summer before high uh, senior year, I decided I was going to join the Marine Corps. Um, my grades weren't good enough to get into college. And the people that were not getting into college were starting to get in trouble with the law and, and partying a lot. And I was like, you know, I just don't want to be around that. And I can't go to college. I want to get out of here. I want to do something different. So I, I joined the service the summer before senior year. So when I got to senior year, I knew once senior year was over, I'm going into the military. I figured, let's have some fun. Let's get it out of my system. I'll go to some parties and just get it out of my system. Because when I graduate, you know, shit's going to hit the fan. I'm going into the military. It's going to get real. So I started going to parties my senior year. And I didn't go to fit in. I didn't go to be popular. I was, in a, I was a very popular kid in high school. I had many friends, many girlfriends. I, I was... I was a part of a bunch of people's cliques. I, I didn't do one click. I hung out with everybody in high school. I was a very all person. You're telling my story, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and mine too, in many it, ways. It wasn't to fit in. I just figured I would let some steam off because you know it's going to get real at the end of the year. So Aren't I started you a drinking. Sociopath? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. My wife has called me that a couple times. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I just started going to parties and I started drinking some beer. And once I, I, once I started drinking some beer, 
I was like, well, what else is here? You know, let, let me let me see what else is here. So I, I started smoking pot, and t- you know, pot's pot, it, it, you know, big deal for me. I started smoking pot, and then oh, what's that? You got some LSD? What's that do? Oh, I'll take a couple hits of that. So I started tripping and doing LSD, mushrooms. Started doing some mushrooms. Oh, what's that? A, a Percocet? What's that do? I'll, I'll start taking some Percocets. Oh, PCP? You got some of that? I'll try some of that. Holy too. cow! Yeah, Wait, I'm right there with you. I, that's exactly what happened Shit. to me. I just let me try that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am so thankful. Um, my senior year, 1994, I never saw heroin. I never saw cocaine. I I, I cannot imagine. I would have not turned it down. I probably would have tried it because at that point I was just like, this is just a phase. Let me get it out. Let me try everything once. But that once lasted the entire senior year of my high school. All the drugs lasted that whole entire year on top of Mm -hmm. drinking. When I graduated, the drugs stopped. I, I, I went into the military. The drugs completely stopped. But once I graduated boot camp and I got stationed in North Carolina, the alcohol was a daily thing. When we got done at four o'clock, a group of us would leave the military base. We would go out to the bars and go out to the strip clubs. And the motto around the military bases were, if you're old enough to take a bullet for this country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. So Mm. at 18, 19, 20 years old, they had no problem serving us. They only said when you ordered the beer, you couldn't stand there holding it in your hand. You had to take a drink and sit down on the table just in case the authorities walked in, but they would serve you all night long. So it wasn't the turd. We would see our sergeants at these bars, you know, late 20, young 30 year old men who are training us and they would just say the same thing. Just make sure you're up at 4 a.m. in the morning to go running and, <laughs> and do your training. We don't care how much you party. Just make sure you're up at formation at 4 a.m. So, as, as an 18, 19, 20-year-old man, you're looking up to these older guys who've been doing it 8, 9, 10 years, and you're kind sure. of like, well, this, this is what we do. You know, we, we train hard, we drink, we party hard, and, and that was kind of what was expected. Mm. Um, 1995, my unit got deployed to um, Somalia. Now, it, it wasn't during wartime. There was no war going on. There was no combat. But we went there for training purposes, and I got to see the aftermath of what war does to a country. And mm. it affected me. It, it, it truly did. I didn't think it did until I got home. But once I got home and then got discharged three months later, and, I, and, and I'm out of the military, you know, the, the first month was kind of good. I was like, wow, I can sleep in. I don't have to shave every day. I don't have to put on my uniform every day. I don't have to run four or five miles today. The first month was kind of like a decompression. I'm, I'm out of the military. Let me relax. The second month came and I kind of had the, the, the oh shit factor, man. I got to get a job. Um, I got to get a vehicle. I got to start paying my mom rent because I moved back in with my mom. And what am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? Cause now I'm out of the military. The third month came and I got severely depressed. I I wouldn't leave my bedroom. I wouldn't shave. I wouldn't shower. I was drinking every single day. And now since I'm not having drug tests, I'm taking, I'm drinking, I'm smoking pot and I got my hand on some pain pills. 
and I'm sitting in my bedroom one day and I'm, I'm lost. I'm like, how did I go from, you know, an exceptional athlete to being in the Marines to now I'm completely lost and I have no direction in life and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm, I'm 20 years old. I'm a young man. What am I going to do? And it overwhelmed me. I didn't have the answers. I was lost. I didn't, I didn't have a purpose. My only thought was go into my stepfather's armoire and grab his gun and put it in my lap. And that's what I did. I went to my stepfather's armoire and I put it in my lap and I sat there and I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm contemplating using it. And I pick up the phone and call my girlfriend and I said, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm bad off. I'm sitting here looking at my stepdad's gun in my lap. I don't know what I'm doing. And she was at my house in five minutes and she took it from me. When my mom got home from work, I told my mom something, something's wrong. I was like, I'm severely depressed. I didn't tell her. I just had my stepdad's gun in my lap. She would have freaked out and had me sure. committed mm -hmm. and, and all that. But I told her there's something going on. I'm more depressed than I've ever been in my life. Something's going on. So she made appointments for me, go to the doctor and they, they, they re-diagnosed re me with bipolar one disorder and PTSD in 1995 was not a recognized disorder like it is today. I, you, I, I, you always had the informal term shell shock, but not PTSD. Correct. And I'm sure the government knew of some form of it, but it wasn't uh, uh, allocated PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So there was mm. no, there's no, there was no uh, way to take care of it. There was no steps on how to take care of it and who to see about it. But I go to the doctors, they re-diagnose me with bipolar one, and they're like, okay, we need to put you on medicine. Your, your highs are way too high and your lows are way too low. And then I start thinking about as I was growing up when I played sports, how I would train longer than everybody else. I was more focused than everybody else. And then when I lost, I was more sad than everybody else. And they said, yeah, that, that's your bipolar disorder. You would get focused on something. And you would go, 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 go. I'd be first to practice and I'd be the last one to leave, you know, and it was, it was my manic modes, but I was, I guess I was kind of controlling them as a young boy because I was playing sports and I was occupying my time. But now I'm a, I'm a young 20 year old man and I've been through some stuff and now I don't know how to, how to deal with it. So the doctors put me on medicine and I, I want to say, if you are put on any type of medicine for a mental illness, please be honest with your doctors. If you are drinking or using drugs, please be honest. Don't be ashamed about it. Don't, don't feel guilty. Be honest. I was not honest. I didn't tell them I was drinking every day and smoking pot and taking pain pills when I could. And if mushrooms came around, I'd take some of them. So when they put me on the medicines and I'd go back after 30 days and they weren't working, their only solution was, well, maybe the milligrams are off. Come mm. back in another 30. Oh, we'll, up, no. we'll, up the, we'll up the milligrams. Go back nice. in another 30. Oh, well, they're still not working. Well, maybe the medicines we have you on aren't the right ones. Let's put you on these medicines. And that was a, that was a cycle that I have been on my entire life from 20 years old up until the age of 44 when I went into rehab, I'd be on medicine. I'd be off medicine. My milligrams would change. The cocktail of medicines that they gave me would change. 
They could never pinpoint and figure out why these bipolar medicines were not working. And the entire time, it was because I was drinking every day and doing drugs. And it didn't matter what cocktails or milligrams they put me on. The medicines were never going to work because of the drugs and alcohol in my system. I never put two and two together until I got sober and went to rehab and started reading and talking to my doctors and finally realizing that's not how medicines are designed. They're supposed to work with no alcohol and drugs in your system. Right. So for, tw- for 20 years, I, I, I would do the typical, I, I say, bipolar wave. I would take my medicine for six to eight months and then feel great and be like, well, what the hell am I taking these medicines for? I'm just going to throw them out. I feel good. I don't need them. You know, and then why crap. is that? Like a lot of people, a lot of my girlfriends have bipolar. I mean, pretty much every one of my best friends has bipolar. I don't know, one and two, but they'll think they're okay and they won't take the medicine. Is there is there something different when you have bipolar that tells you you're okay? It's just kind of an interesting <sighs> thing because you know you're not if you go off. You're, you're perfect when you're on it, right? It helps you a lot. Right. You feel normal. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm going to say normal right. because you, you feel like a normal person. And yeah. I don't know if it's the disease telling you or if it's your mm-hmm. ego telling you, but you're like, mm-hmm. I don't need them anymore. I'm doing great. I've been doing great for six months. Why should I keep yeah. taking these? And you throw them away. Right. You know, and you're not supposed to just stop taking your psych meds. That causes a bunch of problems. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a deep valley in a, in a, in a crash and all of your emotions are out of whack. Now your brain receptors are misfiring and you find yourself back at the doctors within 30 days. I don't know what happened. What did you stop taking medicine? Yeah, I felt good. That's not how it works. You can't just stop taking the medicine. You have to come to us and we decide whether or not you can come down on the medicines, but you shouldn't just stop on yourself. Right, and it's that, a strict regimen. Absolutely, you know, and that's what I've done for the last 20 plus years. And I think the longest I've been on medicine was a year and a half, and that was in my late 20s. And I felt great, and I was taking it every day, doing what I should be doing. I was working out, and I was, I was still drinking and smoking pot and taking pain pills, but I, I figured, man, I, I got this under control. A year and a half, no crashes, no manic modes. I'm feeling good. And then I stop and would just go right back into that cycle of going back to the psychiatrist, going back to the psychologists in and out of psych wards, because I would get so depressed where my mind would race so bad that I couldn't turn it off. I couldn't sleep for days. I, I would, I would just hear all these things in my head and, and be worrying about the past couple months worrying about the past, the, the future months coming ahead. And I just couldn't turn it off. And I just, I, I needed to calm my brain down. So I, I probably spent three or four times, uh, 72 hour holds at, at psych wards. Um, my longest was a 30 day. Um, we have this huge hospital here called Shepherd Pratt here in Maryland. And it's one of the nation's leading mental health. I understand so facilities and I spent 30 days there got me back on my meds I I wasn't doing drugs or drinking because I had 30 days in a facility when I got out I felt great then I would just slowly start drinking again slowly start Mm -hmm. smoking again slowly start doing drugs again 
And that cycle would just continue, continue, and continue. And during this, I, I, I got married. I've had two children by now. And this affected my employment so much. From the age of 20 up until about 40 years old, I had 46 jobs. Oh, jeez. And that is due- <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I might be able to relate. Ooh. Yeah. I would go for two, three months and get bored of it, or I would just call out and not want to go again. Um, I'd yeah. have anxiety or panic attacks at work, and I would just leave. And I never, I never put two and two together that it was my bipolar and my drug and alcohol addiction, which was making me miss jobs. I would just quit and get bored and just leave. And, oh, I'll just get another job. I ain't worried about it. And that was a cycle most of my life. Oh, gosh. What is your true passion with regards to profession? I'm a carpenter. Oh, okay. So So you're good with your hands. I'm really good. Um, You know, uh, at the age of 15, my stepfather wanted to loft our house. And I said, who's doing it? And he said, me, you. And my four brothers. And I said, I, what? He goes, I'm not paying somebody twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 for something we can do. And that's, Ooh. I learned how to frame. I learned how to do roofs, electrical, plumbing. And throughout my life, even throughout all those 40 some jobs, half of those were in a carpentry field doing something. Okay. Carpentry, electrical, plumbing, roofing, landscaping. All something having to do with that field of, of construction or, or carpentry. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily for the last 10 years, it's been all strictly carpentry. Um, that's been with a couple of different companies, but it's all been, <laughs> <laughs> all been carpentry, you know, a hundred percent. So I really love seeing something look terrible and run down and beaten and rebuilding it to something beautiful. And knowing that I did that with my hands, and it's a it's a sense of accomplishment mm-hmm. that that I know Relates. I I did that, and um, you know I'm making somebody's ha- making somebody happy that you know it, it's it's verification that I'm I was worth something. Like, look, I can do this. I did that by myself. I got approval, and 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 I got paid for it. That that's you know that was great for me. So how um, did you sure. how did you get sober? What happened? So, I, I, in my 30s, uh, late 30s, like 35, I lost my 20th, 30th job. And I was like, man, I, what am I going to do? And my wife's like, what's the problem? And I said, I, I just don't know. I, I, I miss sports. I miss competing. I miss, you know, training. I miss doing something. She goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I, I really want to try mixed martial arts. And I took Taekwondo, boxing, and all that when I was growing up. And she said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one year. She said, I- I'll take care of the bills. I'll give you one year. You can go training if that helps you, and we'll see how this goes. And I took a year. I went training. I got fights. I was fighting in Atlantic City, a Harris Casino in Philadelphia and Baltimore. Wow. I, wasn't, I wasn't making a lot of money, like $1,500 a fight, but... It was another, it was again, a sense of accomplishment that. Of course. I I trained. I'm fighting in front of three, 4,000 people on TV. Like I felt like something. I felt like something. My last fight, I tore my rotator cuff 
uh, toward my la- my labrum in three places. And uh, I got come out of the locker room and I can't lift my arm. My wife's like, what's wrong? She knew something was wrong. I was like, I can't move my arm. And she said, are you kidding me? And I said, no. She said, you're done. That's it. She said, you're 35. She's like, that's it. She's like, you got it out of your system. We have to go to the doctor now. So I go to the doctor and, and surely I, I needed a, uh, needed uh, surgery. So yeah. I had to have major surgery. And that was, pro- I've had seven surgeries. That was the worst, most painful surgery I think I've ever had. Um, the rehab time was, uh, I believe it was almost 10 months. But that, that started a pain pill prescription addiction from my doctors. And I'm 46, so 35, that's 11 years ago. They didn't have in place, thank God, what they do now where they only give you a certain amount and then you have to go see a pain pain management clinic and they have to do all their assessments and all that. 10, 11 years ago, I would just go in every 30 days and say, you know, it still hurts. Okay. And they would just, they would just fill my prescription. And it started off with, with, uh, hydrocodones, you know, and they would give me five, 10 milligrams. I'd go in after 30 days, you know, the hydrocodones are okay, but they really don't take the pain away. Okay. Well, we'll switch you to Percocets. I'd go back another 30 days. Well, I like the Percocets, but they make my stomach all, all messed up. They give me cramps in my stomach and, and I just don't like them. Okay, well, we'll switch it back to hydrocodones, but we'll make them 10, 10 milligrams, you know, we'll up to milligram. And I would do that for about six months. And then finally, they said, you know what, we're just going to put you on oxys. And we're going to give you 20 milligram oxys. And that should do it. That should do the trick. As every good addict, I, I, I wouldn't take one oxy every four hours. I would take two to three every four hours. I would finish my prescription two weeks early. And then have to call my buddies to go out to the street to get me pain pills until my doctor would fill in my prescription at the end of the month. Yeah. I was drinking 12 beers on top of this every single day. So I've taken right. 8 to 10, 20 milligram oxys, 12 pack of beer and smoking pot. And it got to a point where I got scared. I, mm-hmm. I literally, I was sitting on my bed and I was like, this is how somebody dies. I am going to take this tonight and drink my beer and I may not wake up tomorrow morning. And I don't want to do that. If I'm going to die an addict or an alcoholic, I'm going to do it myself. And I reach over on my nightstand and I opened my bottle of oxys. I had 18, 20 milligram in my bottle and I took all 18 of them. And I go out into the living room and I drink a 12 pack of beer within like an hour. And I go and lay down in the bed and I say, please don't let me wake up. I just want the pain to go away. I can't do this anymore. And I fell asleep and I woke up the next day. And I remember getting up and being like, oh my God, I woke up. And I go into the bathroom where my refill of 30 was sitting on the counter. And I open up the bottle and I pour all 30 of them down the toilet. And I look myself in the mirror and I said, I, I remember, I said, don't forget how bad this is going to feel because we never want to do this again. Don't forget this feeling. And for the next 10 days, I was the sickest I think I've ever been in my entire life. The insomnia, the nausea, the racing thoughts, the throwing up, the going to the bathroom, the jitters, the shakes. You know, the cold, like feeling like I have a cold, a fever, the whole thing. But every morning when I woke up for those 10 days, I looked in the mirror 
crying and, and just looking like, like somebody beat me with a baseball bat. And I said, mm. don't forget this feeling. We never want to do this again. And that was the last time I took pain medicine. It's been eight years since I've taken a pain pill and I was able to stop that on my own. Thank God. Once those 10 days went away, um, you know, I was still, I was still down. I was still depressed and I was still drinking every day. I was still smoking pot, but the pain pills have gone away. So I'm like, I, I got to go for a ride. I got to clear my head. So I get in my truck and I go and we have this beautiful reservoir down here where people go hiking and picnicking and walk their dogs. And it's right on the water. You can take your boat out and go fishing. And I'm driving through the park and I get to this tree where, um, my senior year of high school, my best friend, unfortunately, lost control of his car and hit the tree and lost his life at the age of 18. Oh, at, stars. at this tree, his parents set up a little visual. There's a picture of him hanging on the tree. There's a book that's still there today. And this is uh, December 27th, two days after Christmas, 1996, when he passed away. So... This is March 16th, 2017, when I take this ride 21 years later. And I stop at this tree, and I get out, and, and I'm like, Bill, I need help. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. You know, I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what my purpose is. I'm lost. Please just send me a sign that I'm not alone, that there's something out there. Because I had no faith in anything. I thought... Why, if there was a God, why would somebody like me have to go through all this heartache and pain and addiction and, and, and mental illness if there was such a God? So I had no faith whatsoever. And I said, please just send me a sign. I just need to know that there's something out there other than myself. And I get in my truck and I leave. As I'm leaving, I'm crying and I can't really drive. So I pull over on the side of the road. But I pull over facing... <laughs> I I, I pull over facing the wrong side of the road. And as I sit there, 10 minutes goes by and this car pulls up and we're we're hood to hood. We're we're bumper to bumper. And I see this man getting out of his car and he opens his back door and he grabs his dog and he's about to go walk over to the, to the water. And I look and I'm like, Oh my God. And I get out and I say, Mr. Bill, it was my best friend who died in 1996. It was his father, whom I I hadn't seen in 21 years since the day of my friend's funeral. And I get out and I say, Mr. Bill, and he looks at me and goes, Timmy, what's wrong? And I fall to the curb. I'm like, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I'm lost. I don't know why I'm here. I don't don't know my purpose. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Timmy, I'm not supposed to be here today. I'm supposed to be in South Carolina on the family reunion trip. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come here at 10 a.m. this morning to walk the dog. I believe I was sent here to see you. And I said, I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and I asked him for a sign. And then you showed up 10 minutes later and we hugged and he said, everything's going to be okay. Mm. As I'm leaving the park, I have this for about five to 10 minutes. Wow. Everything's going to be okay. You know, I'm going to be all right. And then my addictive personality steps in and says, you're right. You are going to be all right. So you don't have to stop drinking because now you're being watched and protected. Nothing is going to happen to you. So for the next four years, I drank the most alcohol I have ever drank in my entire life. 
the beer wasn't enough. The beer just, the beer didn't do it anymore. So I had the bright idea to switch over to whiskey. And my, again, my, 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 the way that I think I, I didn't want to buy a big bottle of whiskey. I, I bought the miniatures so I could drink mm. them and throw them away and forget how much I was drinking. I could hide them and stash them and go get them when I wanted them and drink them throughout the day. And it got to the point where the year as I went into rehab, I was drinking 25 to 30 fireball miniatures every single day. One miniature is two and a half shots. So two and a half times 25 or 30, I was drinking upwards of 60, 70, sometimes 80 shots of fireball whiskey every single day for over a year and a half. I was oh, absolutely killing myself and I didn't realize it. I get a brand new truck and I'm, I'm leaving the liquor store after picking up my sleeve of fireball and I hit something and I still to this day have no idea what I hit. I, I honestly don't, but I remember walking in the front door and telling my wife, I hit something. I'm going to bed. I'll deal with it tomorrow. And I go to bed. I wake up the next morning, like every good alcoholic. Good morning. I'm going to the store. Do you need some milk and bread and water? And she looks at me and she's like, how are you going to do that? And I said, in my new truck in the driveway. And she says, Tim, go look at your vehicle. And I go outside. My, my passenger mirror is gone. It's like off the truck. It's not even there anymore. And my right front tire is smashed in and hanging off the rim. And I'm sitting there looking at my truck. I don't even know how I drove it home. And I'm looking at it. And she pops her head out the door and she says, you have no idea what you hit last night, do you? I said, no, I, I don't remember. And she said, Tim, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. You can't stay here anymore. You have to leave and figure this out. I don't want you around the kids. You have to leave and figure this out. So I go in and pack, pack some clothes and I call my friend. I'm like, hey, buddy, um, can I come over to your house for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over. You know, she'll let me back in in a couple of days. Let things cool down. And uh, she'll, she'll be okay in a couple of days. And he says, yeah. So I call AAA. They come over to put a spare tire on my car. And off I go to my buddy's house. And when I get there, he's like, well, you know, your wife kicked you out. And uh, we really got nothing else to do. We might as well go to the bar because, you know, now you got a reason to drink because your wife done kicked you out. It sounds like a great idea, buddy. Let's go. Because <laughs> now, now I have a real good reason to drink. My wife just kicked me out. <laughs> so I go to the bar and this is less than 12 hours later. This is like maybe 10 hours later after waking up. And as I'm leaving the bar, I rear end somebody at the red light. Oh, and, oh and, shit. and I get out and I look at the guy and luckily he had a, uh, a tow hitch on his truck. His truck was fine, but now the front of my bumper, my truck's all smashed in. So I, I get out and I'm like, are you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm okay. I said, well, your truck's okay. You're okay. I'm out of here. And I slapped him on his back and I jumped in my truck and I took off because I knew I was going to jail. I was, I was completely smashed. I get to my buddy's house and I'm like, man, I cannot stay here. I, I, I got to go be by myself. I just got to go think about stuff. I, I'm leaving. So I leave his house and I go to um, one of those parking rides where people park during the day and grab a train and go to work. And I go mm -hmm. and, and I sit at the park and ride. Um, I have my, my whiskey with me and, and I turn off my phone. I'm like, I don't want to deal with anybody. I don't want to talk to nobody. Like, leave me alone. And I sit there for two days. 
with my phone off, just listening to sad-ass music on my radio, and doing the whole pity party me, why does this have to happen to me, I'm a piece of crap, my kids are better off without me, my mom's better off without me, my wife's better off without me, like, I, I just don't deserve to live, the whole down, just putting myself down for 48 hours and drinking and passing out and drinking and passing out. God, that's at 7 after 10 on March 5th, 2021, at 7 after 10, I turned my phone on. Two minutes later, my phone rings. And I look down and it says Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I'm like, I have no idea who this is. And I pick it up. It was my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And he says, Lodging, what the F are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm cold, I'm drunk, I'm hungry, and I'm tired. And he says, good, that's what you need. He's like, I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. He goes, I got a plane ticket set for you this evening to go down to West Palm Beach, uh, Florida. I want you to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers and get the help you need. He's like, I, just do me a favor. Call me when you pass security because I want to make sure your ass is getting on the plane and you're not going to catch a cab out of the airport and leave. I said, okay, 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 I'll go, I'll go. And I hang up the phone. and. I'm not really sure. I'm just kind of agreeing with him on the phone. You know, and I hung up. My wife calls and says, can you please come home, take a shower, pack, try to eat something. You had about four or five hours to the plane. list. she was trying to take a nap. I'm like, okay. So I go home, I take a shower and I pack. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. My mind's going a million miles an hour. I'm panicking because now, are you serious? I got to give him a plan and go to rehab. Like my, I let my life get this bad to where not, I got to go to rehab. How long am I going? 30 days, 60 days, six months? I don't know. So all these thoughts are going through my head. I'm having a panic mm. attack. My anxiety's through the roof. I don't know what, how I got my life to be this bad. And I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and my addiction steps in one last time and tries to take mm. my life. And it grabs my hand and says, you know, just end the pain. Walk with me. And it grabs my hand and it takes me to the basement takes me to the basement of my home and throws a rope around my neck and stands me up on a bucket and tells me to end the pain because we can't do this. Just end the pain. And I go to the basement of my home and I put a rope around my neck and I stand up on a bucket in the corner of the basement. And about a minute goes by and uh, my wife realizes I'm not upstairs. So she comes down to the basement and she sees me in the corner of our home with a rope around my neck. And I'm, mm. I'm hysterically crying. And, and she looks at me and she says, what are you doing? And I said, I can't do it. I can't go. I just want the pain to stop. I don't know how to get it to stop. I can't live like this anymore. And she says, Tim, do you know what this would do to your three little girls? Please, please get down and get on that plane. Everything will be okay. Just please get down and get on that plane. And uh, 30 seconds go by, maybe, and I, I take the rope from around my neck, and I fall to the floor, and I, I sit there and cry for about 10 minutes. And I go upstairs, and I call my friend. And I say, hey, Brandon, I'm... I, I got to get on that plane tonight. If I don't get on that plane tonight, this disease is going to kill me. And, and I, I, I don't, I don't want to die. And he, all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. 
pass you pass, call me when you pass security. So my mom picks me up and takes me to the airport. I pass security. I call him. I say, hey, I got about 30 minutes to the plane leaves. Um, just want to let you know I'm past security and I'm at the boarding, getting ready to board in about 30 minutes. And he says, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're about to get back everything you've, you've lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. As I go to sit down in the seat, waiting for them to call me to board my plane. As I sit down at the seat at the airport, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that comes over my entire body. It washed over me like a warm blanket that I've, I've never felt in my entire life. At that exact moment, my panic left my body, my depression, my, my worry, my anxiety. It was a calming, warm feeling that I've never felt before. And at that exact moment, I hear this woman's voice in my head. And it's a calming, loving voice. And it says, everything is going to be okay. It was the most amazing experience I have ever felt in my entire life. It was at that moment that I knew at the age of 44 years old that I was finally going to get the help that I needed to save my life. It changed my mind immediately. I went from worry and doubt to hope and let's do this. Let's yeah. go. When I got to rehab, I didn't miss any meetings. I journaled. I did every, all the homework that they asked me to do. I went to extra meetings for veterans and first responders. I spoke. I shared. I did everything that they asked me to do. I started working out with a personal trainer Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. I changed my diet. I got faith. I started to believe in a, a, a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. I actually started to believe that there was something else out there. It changed my life. What I truly believe I had a spiritual experience in that airport. I've never felt anything like that before. And I don't want to waste that. I don't want to act like that didn't happen. It was a gift given to me. And it has made me realize how precious this gift of life is that we have how most of us take it for granted every single day. I was always, I was always that, that half glass empty. Where the hell is the rest of my drink? Why isn't there ice cubes in it? Where, where, where is it at? Now I am just so thankful that there's something in the cup to thirst my quench or to crest, to crest my thirst. I'm just so thankful that I'm, I'm able to wake up in the morning. I'm so thankful that, you know, People say, I mean, I got to go to work today. I got to take the garbage out. I got to go to the gym. I got to feed my family. I get to go to the gym. I get to go to work. I get to take the trash out at my house. I get to feed my family. I get to do these things every single day. I am so grateful to have a second chance in life. And in the beginning... I did say, I did. Why? Why 27 years? Why did I have to go through 27 years? And then it dawned on me, 27 years, it didn't happen to me. It happened for me. So that I I truly understand the gift of life and how, how, how precious this is. And I was like, you know what? I, I have to give back. 
What was so freely given to me was a second chance at life. And I needed other people to know that they're not alone. And, and it's not to be ashamed of, of what they've gone through, not to be ashamed of their addiction or, or their childhood trauma or whatever afflictions may, may, may hinder them. It's not a shameful thing. And they're not alone. So many people, if not everyone, is dealing with something every single day. The more that we share, the one person that we could help is one person less that we could possibly lose to mental health or addiction. Mm. My third month in, I decided to do a podcast. I was like, I started following podcasts. I started following mental health pages. And I was like, well, I was, I was listening to them. And I said, I think I'm going to try to just get on one and share my story. You know, I, I think it would help me. So I, I messaged a bunch of them. And a couple of them got back to me. And the first podcast I did was, was uh, Knocking Doors Down. And mm. I got on there and I did it. And I felt good. I felt, man, man I, I shared. And if this could just help one person, I think maybe I did my job. You know, I think I, I did something purposeful with my life and meaningful and not an ego driven thing. It was actually a genuine thing that I wanted to do just to give back mm -hmm. four days after the podcast airs. So I did it and it was like two weeks later and then it, then it aired four days after it airs. I'm sitting at a gentleman's driveway, picking up a table to go deliver it at Brandon Novak's rehab house in Delaware. And as I'm sitting there waiting for the guy to open a garage so I can load it in my pickup truck, my phone rings and I pick it up and I don't know the number and I just pick it up and I'm like, hello. And the guy on the other end says, is this Tim? And I said, yeah, this is Tim. Who's this? And he said, this is Tony. I'm like, I, I don't know Tony, man. I'm sorry. And he's like, Tony from the Marine Corps, 1995. This is last year, 2021. And I'm like, yeah, man. What? I was like, how'd you get my number? He said, I got it off of Facebook. I hope you don't mind that I called. I said, no. How you doing, man? What's going on? He said, I'm not, not doing good at all. He said, uh. I've been addicted to pain pills for 18 years. He oh. said, I've lost jobs. He goes, I'm on my third marriage. He said, I've lost my houses, my jobs, my cars. I've lost everything. He said, I had to call you. He said, because four days ago, he goes, I listened oh. to your podcast that aired. Wow. He's like, and I have, oh, he goes, I have four days sober after 18 years. Oh, he said, you, you, in, so he said you instilled hope in me. You instilled the fact that I could make a life change and that I could get through this, that I, I wasn't alone, that other people suffer. And I just needed to call you and personally thank you that, that you touched me and, and you've given me the strength to, to do this. And uh, he's, I said, where do you live? He goes, I live in Ohio. I live in Maryland. You know, and um, as I hung up, I was crying for like 10 minutes. I said, wow. I, I can imagine. Yeah, I just reached somebody in Ohio, and I'm in Maryland from doing one podcast. Not only did I reach one person, I had personally known this person and served within the Marine Corps. How many more people could I reach if I continue to do these podcasts? How many more people's lives could I impact if I share my story with authenticity and truth and let them know that they're not alone? I speak to them every two weeks since then. He's coming up on seven and a half months sober. Oh, that's, oh God, that's great. Amazing. It's God's working. 
So that's, that's, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do podcasts. So I started messaging, piece messaging, messaging. And you got today, right now, this is my 57th podcast this year. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So I, well, you I have know a, in my a story. You have a great story because you have so much depth and weight in the spiritual experience that is so touching. And it's so, not only is it a, mir a miraculous thing, but it's so evident that when you turned your life over and just simply the one thing, because I know it happened to me too, when I asked for help, I was given all these gifts and those kind of stories I have as well. And they're just, these things don't happen. They just don't. And right. they do when you're there and you're aware and you keep sending out your message and, you know, you're incredible. And I'm so thankful that I think I asked you to come on the show. So I got lucky because <laughs> you've been <laughs> right. awesome. Blessed. I, it's to, to say my life has changed a thousand times in 18 months would be an understatement. Um, I never wow, could imagine. I, I, I couldn't imagine the opportunities that, that have been given me, um, the opportunities that are coming. Um, last week, uh, no, was it last week? Yeah, I went to North Carolina and spoke mm -hmm. at, at a um, addiction awareness uh, little event that they had there in the town of North Carolina in Rockingham. That's um, great. Next month, I and fly out the half moon day. Months, you know, yeah, and, and it's, it's wonderful. It's amazing. It's a, it really shows me that I have a purpose in life now. And, and I truly believe it, it's, it's sharing my story and giving back. And I want to, I want to speak about it. I want to, I want to go and, and reach as many people as possible. And next month I'm flying out to California, half moon bay to speak in front of 300 veterans and first responders about mental health. Oh, that's um, great. October. I love I, you, bro. I'm getting on a phone call tomorrow with a lady from Las Vegas. She's having a mental men's mental health uh, summit in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. She said she wanted me to come and speak. So we're going to work out the details there. Um, and then at the end of September, I'm speaking at a, um, a men's mental health summit. Um, it's going to be virtual online, but they asked me to be the feature speaker. And oh, it's going to be live. It's just, and then November, I'm doing Empower to Empower. You know, guess what? You're staying sober because you're keeping busy and you're helping people. You know, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, the process, and, you're, you're staying sober. And I'm glad. I'm glad you said that because last Friday, believe it or not, I lost my job. Um, and it wasn't due to me. The gentleman literally called me and said, "Hey, I just bought a house. I can't afford to pay you anymore." This is on a Friday. So two days before, you know, yeah. I go to work Monday through Friday. Yeah. Calls me on Friday. He goes, I can't afford to pay you anymore. Um, I hope I've helped you out for a long time, but I, I can't afford to have you come back on Monday. Just like that. And then hung up. For the last week, I, I've noticed, I have been a little sad, but I have the tools now to know that I'm, I'm getting sad and I, and to know to get my funk out of it, to go do something, to go read, to meditate, to go to the gym, do these other things to occupy my time rather than just sitting there and letting it all accumulate and take me to a place where I don't ever want to be again. 
and I've I've learned those tools through recovery and sobriety and and, now, and reading. You, you know the meditation. So you you talk about the mental illness and how the thoughts were just. How do you do when you meditate? Are you able to um, you know take the time to really do that and and focus in? I mean, is it still hard for you, or have you gotten better? Well. When I went to rehab, um, they got they got me on medicine for my bipolar, and uh, imagine it, it actually works when there's no drugs and alcohol in your system, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. <laughs> but they had me on my, and I'm on a low dose of like Lexapro, and then at night I take my Seroquel for racing thoughts and my mm. they they say uh, psychotic episodes of bipolar, so that really helps my racing thoughts. I've learned to, you know, exercise has really helped me calm down. Um, eating right, changing my diet and putting the proper nutrition in my body has helped me calm down. Mm. I'm able to, I, I pray when I go to sleep at night and I don't pray for anything for myself. I've learned that you pray for other people. You pray for uh, things to happen to other people. You don't ever pray for yourself. And by doing that, prayers are answered for you. I used to always do the foxhole prayers, you know, get me out of this, get me out of that, give me a million dollars, you know, give me this, give me that, and nothing would ever happen. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I, I've learned to pray for other people. That has calmed me down. And knowing that whatever's taking place now in my life is just another stepping stone into something better and greater. I have to believe that what I'm going through is just preparing me for another journey with something with a better and greater purpose. Maybe it's that. maybe it's time that at 46 years old that I put down the hammer and drill. Maybe it's time I go work for a rehab center. Maybe maybe I become a speaker and and, and share my journey and story with other people around the world, around the United States. Maybe I, I, I've been I've been asked to write my book. Maybe I'll write a book and get it out there for other people mm. to read. Maybe you're a gifted stopped, storyteller. I have to say that. I, thank you. Maybe I stop worrying about myself and start doing something that that is right in here, not up in here. Yeah. Of course. I don't. There's no monetary value with doing these podcasts, but when I'm doing them, it feels right. It mm. feels like I'm doing something that I was always meant to do. This, I don't script anything when I talk. It just comes out. And sometimes when I'm sure. done, I'm like, wow, uh, I really told a good story. I don't know where that comes from, but it just comes. And I, I think I've been given something and I want to give it back. And, and I don't expect anything true, back man. from it. I don't, I don't expect anything back from it. And I think that's the best gift that I've been given. Um, yeah. I'm humbled. My ego's been taken from me. I'm mean, I still got a little ego. I, I like I like going to the gym and, and looking good and but I'm not ego driven. The things that I sure. do are not, not not for me. They're they're to help other people. And I think when you're doing something for the right things, you know, when you put out good it comes back. And I never ever believed that in my addiction because I was always, why do I have such bad luck? Well, what are you putting out there? You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> I was a I was, very mature question. I was uh, I was an asshole. You know what I mean? And but weren't we all? Thank God I was never. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Thank God I I was never physically abusive to my family, but I sure as shit was verbally abusive. I said the meanest, nastiest things to the people I love the most. And Mm. when I got home from rehab, I have three daughters, um, 23, 14, and 11. And when I got home from rehab, my, my oldest was still living home, and she didn't talk to me. And I'm like, I just got home from rehab. I just did 32 days, you know. Look at me. And my wife's like, Tim, you you drank her entire life. You're Mm -hmm. not going to repair this in 32 days of rehab. She needs to see action. You know, you need to start going to your meetings. You need to get a sponsor. You need to start living the steps. Two months goes by, three months, four months, five months goes by, six months goes by, still nothing. She'd just come in the house and walk up the steps. Not even, hi, dad, not hello, wouldn't even look at me. Finally, on my ninth month of sobriety, I just happened to get a text message, and it was from my oldest daughter. And she says, Dad, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. Thank you for giving me the time to heal, because I know you were healing too. And I haven't told you, but I love you so much, and I'm so proud of you for everything you're doing. I cried for like 20 minutes. I I, te- I text my wife. I sent her the message. She said, your daughter sent that to you? I said, I know, right? She said, Tim, she was honestly, I thought that would never happen. She said, that is so awesome. And me and my daughter now, she's moved out, but we speak two or three times a week. We have a relationship that we've never had before. Um, and she said, she said, Dad, I have to be honest with you. When I used to see girls with their fathers, it would make me cry because I used to see their relationships. She said, and we didn't have that relationship like that. She said, I was, I was good when she was a small child. When she got to become a teenager and started dating boys, I was, I was a complete monster. She Mm -hmm. said, we never had that relationship. She said, I'm so thankful to have my daddy back. And, um, I have, I have two little grandson now. I have a four year old grandson and a three month old grandson. And she texted Congratulations, me. man. Thank you. She she called me the other day. She said, you know what I'm so thankful for? She said that my little boys will have somebody to look up to, that they can come oh. to when they're time and eat. And she said, and I'm really proud that they'll never see you drink or drunk. And I know you're not supposed to say never, ever, never, ever. But if I have anything to do with it, I personally never, ever want to pick up again. I don't want to pick up again. I don't see anything good happening, and I don't want to lose everything that I've gained. I've lost way too much, almost up into including my life. And I know if I go back there, it's in the parking lot waiting for me. It's doing push-ups. It's getting stronger. It's waiting. It's waiting behind that bush. It's waiting for me to come out, and it's going to take me. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that that never happens again. And I can show those two young men that no matter what happens to you in your life, no matter how many times you get knocked down, you can get back up. As long as you get back up and keep going, everything is going to be okay. You know, alcohol and drugs promised and took everything from me. And I'm coming for everything that they took and promised. I'm coming for all of it. And I'm not going to stop. Oh, yeah. With interest. Tim, 
this is really, and I think Daniela would agree, you've given us the best episode out of an entire catalog this entire year. Oh. Congratulations on what you have achieved. And just from my side personally, all my family come from law enforcement and military. Thank you for your service to the country from which you hail. Thank you for being transparent in your story. We wish you nothing shy, but all the blessed in your endeavors going forward. And please don't stop. Please don't stop. The best is yet to come. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been really an emotional episode this week. Again, thanks to our guest, Tim Lodgen. Tim, before we log off, I do a solo show. Would you like to come and make an appearance on it? Absolutely. I'll send you the deets after the show. Yeah. This has been Doing It Sober Live. Thank you for those who have tuned in to the live stream. If you've missed out, you can always catch up on demand on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if there's something to be taken away from this, we all have stories that may seem in premise inherently different, but in fact, it's inherently the same. The common thread is we're doing life sober. God bless to you all. I'm Chris Nell, Daniela Park here beside me. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you very much.